Welcome to the CLA's podcast series, Rural Business Uncovered. In this series, we will review in detail the key issues facing landowners and rural businesses today. For example, you will hear about how rural tourism has found innovative ways to deal with the COVID crisis, farm diversification through the eyes of a CLA member and how they did it, what the future of food looks like and much more. The Country Land and Business Association are the only organisation dedicated to protecting and defending the rights of landowners and rural businesses. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Rural Business Uncovered, brought to you by the CLA, where each week we discuss matters affecting the rural sector. Today's episode is supported by Till Hill. David Attenborough's recent Netflix documentary did an incredible job making the case that the key to solving climate change is right in front of us, nature. Nature is our biggest ally, inspiration, and the best, most cost-effective, shovel-ready technology we have to tackle the climate crisis, sucking carbon out of the air and storing it. In this two-part podcast, we will focus on how the UK, with its vast tracts of peatland and significant potential for tree planting, is uniquely placed to deploy these solutions. The government has announced a 640 million new Nature for Climate Fund with money earmarked to restore 35,000 hectares of peatland and plant 30,000 hectares of trees by 2025. This podcast will explore what nature climate solutions are in practice and how they can be harnessed on a farm level. Part one today will focus on all things trees, how we get them in the ground, how they can help us reach net zero and the tools landowners need to increase tree planting. In the next instalment, we will look to peatland and establish how both upland and lowland peat have an important yet very different roles to play. And joining us on this podcast, we have Graham Clark, Senior Land Use Policy Advisor for the CLA and Andy Baker, Forest Manager at Till Hill. Thank you both for joining us. And to start, it'd be good if you can give a brief introduction to yourselves, starting with you, Graham. Well, morning. I am CLA Land Use Policy Advisor, so I cover forestry policy, woodland policy, advise members on, on those sorts of things and also energy as well. So it's a bit of crossover between the two in terms of biomass. But those sorts of policy areas are, are what I cover. Oh, great. Thank you, Graham. And, uh, and you, Andy? So, yeah, no, thanks for that. I um, have recently joined the Till Hill Business Division Carbon Store, which is more focused on the carbon code in the UK and the set of carbon new units and so yeah really focused on that side of things for both landowners and corporates at the minute added well brilliant it's great to have two experts joining us on this podcast and it's going to be a fascinating discussion uh, i have no doubt about that and as i mentioned in my introduction the government has set a target to plant thirty thousand hectares of trees by 2025 graham how realistic do you think that target is um well it's an ambitious a very ambitious target the current level of woodland creation is, is a long way short of that. Last year, we created about 13,500 hectares of woodland across the UK. Most of that was in Scotland, will probably continue to be. And 
only about a couple of thousand hectares was created in England and less than a hundred in, in Wales. So it's, we're, we're well short of, of where the government would like us to be. And even the government's own targets are at the lower level of what the Committee on Climate Change would like. They said that they would, uh, th that we need to be planting at least 30,000 hectares every year between that and 50,000. Um, so the government's commitment is, is very much at the lower end of that. And we're, you know, a long way short of reaching that in the short term. So there's a long way to go. But if they put the right policies in place and make it attractive enough, it might well be achievable, but um, it's ambitious. Yeah, it certainly is ambitious, but but the scale of the climate change challenge is 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 large as well, isn't it? It, it needs to be addressed. And and Andy, what's your thoughts around that? You know that there's huge, challenging, ambitious targets being set. You know, are, are we anywhere near to being on track? Well, it's interesting, as you say, Alad. It's uh, ambition is needed. There's the capacity there to do it. A lot of people ask, you know, where are we going to plant? The planting land is there. We can do these targets. It's just facilitating it. In, and particularly focus on the economics of it for both landowners and potential investment. If that is facilitated properly, then it's definitely achievable. Um, but it's just trying to identify where the barriers are and um, reducing them down as much as you can, really. What are the main barriers, would you say? It's, it's difficult because there are challenges for... <sighs> With the bureaucracy around woodland planting, and as as Graham says, when you're talking about specifically about trees, there are so many different types of trees you can plant. Many of you may have heard the right tree in the right place, and that is hugely subjective. So there's a lot of different differing opinions, not only on where you plant, what you plant, on how you manage that planted woodland as well. Um, and so there's there's maybe an issue within the woodland industry itself in terms of um the different bodies involved in woodland creation because we don't have that unified voice there's a lot of infighting almost that, that it seems and then you also look at a lot of the processes involved in woodland creation they're hugely hugely bureaucratic and so it can make it very very difficult um for landowners wanting to plant up their woodlands for you know very good reasons to actually get them in the ground with grant schemes taking years sometimes to uh, to go through the process and to make those payments and so landowners are having to but at times having to expose themselves to a you know a poor financial position for quite a while before grant support comes in so a lot of challenges are there, to be honest, Alad. But as I say, they're, they're definitely, you can definitely overcome them. Yeah. And Graham, you know, representing your members within the CLA, many of which will no doubt either have woodlands or considering planting trees. What are their thoughts around, because it's such a long-term enterprise, it's a long-term investment. You don't get to see the income for a very long time. Can that be a barrier? Uh, yes. Yes, it can. I mean, we only need to look at the extent of planting that, that takes place now to see that, yes, some people do it, but not, not anywhere near to the extent that government now want them to. And I'd, I'd agree with a lot of what Andy said a minute ago there about the complexity of grant schemes and also what you said about the delayed cash flow. It takes at least 20, 25 years with a, with a, a big upfront financial outlay. Uh, before, it's 20, 25 years before you see any of that back in terms of uh, payment through thinning income. And that often doesn't, doesn't cover the cost of doing it. So a lot of woodland creation does rely on grant aid, uh, certainly in, in lowland England. So then the complexity of schemes starts to, to really become an issue. And I think government have actually realised, because many people have been saying this for a long time, that the, the scheme complexity is 
is a turn off and there's there's simple things that can be changes can be made to that like the the minimum three hectare area that's actually on a small farm scale that's a reasonable amount of land that's seven or eight acres you know if we were able to sort of show some flexibility there then that would bring a lot more people on board and a lot of people doing a little adds up to a lot you know there's lots of field corners marginal areas on every farm that could potentially be planted up with small woodlands or could be existing woodlands could be connected or expanded and that could add up to to a lot the permanency is is sometimes a a deterrent as well so even creating a small sort of woodland because of we we have the forestry act which means it's effectively an irreversible land use decision it can sometimes put people off uh, as well but uh, there's a lot of issues sort of tied up with it but yes yeah, certainly scheme complexity is one just following up on one of your points graham just when you mentioned about the cash flow in particular i know that's something that in my conversations with landowners that's always naturally going to be a major issue as you say 20 25 years until you start getting thinning income um, and this is for the more commercial schemes that are looking at actually generating income from the timber anyway for many schemes as you say for the more broadleaf schemes um on the side or the corner of a farm they're not going to really be generating much income post grants which depending on where you are in the country last no more really than 10 years or so um and this is where the the big thing with with carbon generation kind of comes in in terms of trying to fill that gap almost in terms of cash flow um because you can essentially sell you know i, I should probably come on to this more thoroughly later Alec, but um you can sell the carbon units that you generate through woodland creation at any point in that in, in the growth of the woodland. So if you had a 50-year project, you could sell all of your generated woodland carbon units in year zero or year one, or you could sell them staggered throughout that process as and when you need them. So it's essentially a commodity, just like timber, but it's far more flexible in terms of when and to who you sell it to. And that potentially could really change the economics of, of woodland creation. If there's suddenly multiple income streams, not only the timber has an economic value, commercial value, but the carbon stored in those trees also have a value. And that's a really interesting emerging market. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's also quite useful when you mentioned earlier, Graham, about the, the size of schemes and the three hectare minimum size, obviously, depending again where you are UK wide. Um, but again, with the carbon codes and the UK Wooden Carbon Code, one of the benefits there is you can register any scheme of any size. Um, now, obviously, economies of scale, the larger the scheme, the, the more cost effective it is. But you can also group lots of smaller schemes together. So as you say, if you had 50 different one hectare schemes, throw them all in together into a group. And then again, you can generate income from those carbon credits for a woodland that you may not have had the same grant income even from. Uh, and, and Graham, is that something CLA members are actively looking at, you know, ways in which they can sell carbon credits? I think increasingly so. I mean, it's still it's still a, an emerging market. You know, we've been publicising it and, and telling people about it. But I think for the most part, people are still unsure about it, unsure about whether it's for them. Maybe they've looked into it to, to a certain extent, maybe don't understand it. The Woodland Carbon Code, it's, it's a great thing to have because it gives certainty and it gives us a standard, a verifiable standard to show that uh, someone who wants to buy carbon credits, whether they be any any business who wants to offset their emissions for whatever reason, 
reason, it's verifiable. So they're buying something that's real and it's measurable and the person selling that can also rely on that standard. So it's a very useful thing to have, but it is, it is quite complicated. Absolutely. Um, and <laughs> so people tend to need need some help from likes of, you know, Andy or other people who, who help with this sort of thing to talk them through it and, and do all the sums. But yeah, I think more people, more and more people will come on board. I think there's maybe an issue with smaller woodlands where costs of going through and the, the rigmarole of going through that process might not initially seem like worth doing on a very small woodland but that's where as Andy says if you can group things together you know you can get a a bigger scheme and you know if you can work with neighbours or or other people and you know you can get help to identify who where those woodlands might be yeah those things could work. Yeah and Andy talk us through the process if a landowner was keen to try and start selling carbon credits where do they start where do they begin? It's a good question to be fair so obviously that carbon store this is exactly what we do but if you wanted just to have a look through online and have a look at the process the wooden carbon code website is great and it will basically explain specifically for landowners how to look into it and that sort of thing but essentially the first thing really is having a look at the woodland carbon code carbon calculator now this is just an excel sheet and um, again it can look a little daunting which is obviously where i'd be able to help with that sort of thing and colleagues you know across the industry would be able to help with that sort of thing and essentially what you're inputting is data about your potentially proposed woodland creation scheme so as um, as graham mentioned if you had a hectare of land in the corner of your farm or something you could have a look at the soil type its previous use the sort of trees you'd like to see there and you can have a play through this calculator to see well how many units would i generate on that one hectare of land if you then look at the number of units that you would potentially generate let's say it can range depending on as i mentioned before the species the yield class of those species so the rate at which they grow the location you're in um, countrywide the number of units you'll generate will will change but it generally ranges anywhere between 100 to 5 even 600 units in certain circumstances per per hectare now if you use the Wooden Carbon Codes website, they have an indication of price as between seven and twenty pounds per unit. So even if we took a relatively conservative look at ten pounds per unit for the for the let's say two hundred again ten pounds per unit, a conservative number of two hundred units for the hectare, you're looking at two grand of income for an area that you may not have had any income before, or maybe you were looking at as you, as Graham mentioned thinning it in year twenty, but you can't really justify the lack of cash flow until that point except for the grant aid so that would be the first part of the process but i won't get too bogged down um, in every single stage but essentially it'd be have a look at the number of units you might want to generate get in touch with a company like mine or, or elsewhere and see really what the sort of potential for woodland carbon finance would be from there it's a process of registration with the scheme validation verification as as great mentioned it can be very complicated and then the sale of those units again can be um, quite quite tricky um, but again this is where companies like mine will facilitate so I guess just you know, obviously get in touch and we'll be able to explain that a bit more but yeah I hope that gives it a little bit in a nutshell Alida there's a lot to go <laughs> yeah. so, so essentially you're looking at potential carbon income potential income from um, woodland creation schemes and also the commercial income of, of, the, of the, the timber at the end of it so, so there's a multiple streams of income that can potentially put together a business case that supports woodland creation. Andy, in terms of the carbon market, who are the key players? Who are these companies who are looking to offset their emissions? Who's who's driving the market? 
you've, everyone will have seen the amount of carbon neutral by 2035 and 2040 sort of targets. And the real step change, because the Woodland Carbon Code has been around since 2011, um, but the value of the units, the immaturity of the market was such that as exactly as Graham has said, people may have looked at it in the past and thought, Neh. but now, particularly since the government's pledge, the legally binding 2050 carbon neutral target countrywide, and then the introduction again of the Woodland Carbon Guarantee, as um, Graham mentioned, gave a little bit of transparency to a very opaque market up until that point. The agents behind, just to give a bit of background, the agents um, that have been working in the market generally over the last decade have been what's known as carbon traders. So they will buy units from a landowner um, for you know as low a price that they can to then sell on to a, a, a corporate entity um, for as high a price as they can. And the difference between that is their um, their profit margin. Um, and so it is quite difficult for a landowner, really, am I getting a good deal? Am I not? Um, and so with the Woodland Carbon Guarantee, when the price at for the Woodland Carbon units, those actual carbon units that were sold, in, that will be sold in year 1525, an index linked price in the first round of auctions was £24.11. Um, that really gave people who may have sold their units at £2 food for thought to think, right, well, I massively undersold those. And the price has been driven up so dramatically because of those government pledges, because of all these companies' carbon neutral targets. And then again, because of this 30,000 hectares a year, that's a huge undertaking. And I think the private sector are really appreciating not only the carbon benefit, because carbon is just one part of the story. You've got the, the ecological benefit, you've got the flood mitigation, all the social side of things obviously woodlands can provide companies are really seeing those csr so corporate social responsibility marketing potential essentially and there's nothing no no shame in that um they're seeing those benefits there and so woodland creation in the uk in particular is becoming far more attractive and so really driving up that that price of carbon units you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Till Hill is the UK's leading forest management and timber harvesting company, providing a full range of forest management, woodland creation and timber harvesting and marketing services to woodland owners through a network of local offices. Our work plays an essential role in helping to mitigate climate change. We design, plant and manage woodlands and sell the carbon units. Our professionalism and years of experience combined create the very best woodlands for our clients.
And Graham, have you seen that as well in terms of, you know, companies clearly want to engage in this market because they want to offset their emissions, but they're also buying into the fact that, that tree planting is good for the environment, has multiple benefits uh, socially, environmentally. Is that part of the reason, part of the driver, the motivation to get involved? Yeah, I think it is, particularly bigger corporate outfits who are obligated to report to, to government the extent of their emissions. And so there's a there's an obligation on them or, a, or an imperative from their point of view to, to try to offset those or reduce them. And they try to reduce them in the first case. And, and if, if they're not able to do, reduce them any further or the other method is to, to try to offset them through woodland planting. So there's that imperative, certainly for, for larger corporates, but also any size of, of business, if they are interested in uh, furthering their green credentials in the widest sense to demonstrate to their customers and you know we're all consumers we're all much more conscious of this sort of thing nowadays and gradually over time we we start to even without knowing it we start to demand these things of suppliers of all sorts of things it's in the interests of many businesses to even if they don't actually have to report back to government it's sometimes in their interests to demonstrate their green credentials and be able to say that they have facilitated some tree planting for example so there's there's much more of that taking place and a lot more interest to come from it will that also pave the way for more woodland creation grants and, and you mentioned right at the beginning of, of our of our podcast of oh, the differences between england wales and scotland in terms of the areas which have been planted and each of those countries will have slightly different uh, schemes to support the sector do you think there's going to be more support more funding available for, for those projects going forward? I think there will. I think there's quite a lot of interest in woodland creation from the investment market, pension funds and corporate uh, investment that we've just been talking about who might look to be associated with creating woodland directly, but also the longer term pension fund investments. Woodlands over over a long term give a, a modest but relatively safe growth in income. And I think there's lots of interest from, from that side that's just waiting for the, the right mechanisms to be in place to invest in what are often called blended finance, where the government contributes some and the, the corporate or private sector produces some finance. If, if those models can be created so that both can contribute, then a lot more woodland can, can happen. Yeah, and uh, that leads us nicely on to one of the services you've been working on, Andy, in, in Carbon Store. Tell us some more about that. So, no, it's interesting looking at the, um, as I mentioned before, about the nature of the carbon market over the last 10 years, how it's been very opaque. At Carbon Store, we're obviously trying to, reduce that as much as we can and increase that transparency so landowners and corporates as well because if they're buying units for 15 pounds per ton and they they the, those units had been bought from the landowner at two pounds then they're going to feel a little bit like it's a bit of a big markup um and so what we're trying to do rather than that difference in price being our profit margin essentially what we try to do is act almost as estate agents and so we bring interested corporates to landowners who are looking for woodland creation or may have already um, created woodlands and have pending issuance units, woodland carbon units to sell, bring those two parties together and between them, they can then decide on a fair price because the price not isn't only dictated by the value of the carbon, it's actually dictated by the location. For example, if you were to plant a scheme in Kent, the value of those carbon units generally will be higher than if it was um, you know, a really rural area. And that's purely because 
these corporates want to be able to access those woodlands potentially. And all of these sort of access rights, signage rights, planting days, they're all the sort of things that corporates really want to get involved in to maximize the marketing opportunities for them and um, to come across as a far greener company as well. And so the target, I think, really of Carbon Stories to be able to, as I say, give reasonable and realistic advice to both parties, bring them together, and then take a percentage commission um, based on on the value of the sale. So let's say even if that was 10%, for instance, if that was to be a £10 per unit for both parties, the corporate buying at £10 and the landowner selling at £10, that's a far better deal for both parties in that process than it would be if we'd taken that difference. And so hopefully that will increase that transparency over time. But again, the wooden carbon guarantee, as I mentioned before, is something that's really helping to increase that transparency to the market so landowners can feel a little bit more comfortable that they're not underselling their commodity, which is essentially what what there is. And just echoing what Graham said earlier as well about the devils in the detail, there are a lot of complicated elements, as we've discussed, to the carbon code and for a landowner to actually get hold of that funding because you can plant these woodlands and then okay i've got 2000 piu's who wants to buy them you may not have the corporate intra- contacts where you know people specifically who's going to buy them so again trying to facilitate that is a big part of what we do but hopefully as i say all of this is to stimulate new woodland creation but i just wanted to mention something on your previous question to graham about more grants for woodland creation i think it's interesting to look at how the voluntary carbon market which is what the UK Woodland Carbon Code operates under, how that actually would affect those grant systems. Because for a government, obviously grant systems are a big drain. If they instead could pass that cost over to the private sector, we may actually see a slight reduction in the amount of grants available for woodland creation. And they might depend more primarily on private investment, depending on the scale at which that investment comes and um, that sort of thing. So it's just an interesting um, way to look at it, maybe. Yeah, certainly interesting dynamic. If there's going to be increased pressure on public budgets, there there might be that that desire, as you say, from government to to push over some some of the funding uh, pressures and demands to the private sector and getting them to support woodland creation. But I wanted to pick up on something really fascinating you mentioned earlier around carbon credits, and, uh, different credits, not necessarily having the same face value, and it, it makes me think: what are the steps that landowners can take to make their credits more desirable for the market? Are, are there things that that can differentiate your carbon credits from from others? Uh, Absolutely. And I think the main thing is flexibility. So if you were to be a landowner and said, right, I don't want anyone to come onto my uh, my new wooden creation scheme, I want to plant it myself, and I don't want any public access, you're going to have a lower value unit than if you said to a corporate that you were interested in working with, look, I will work with you as closely as you'd like. You can even have a bit of an input into how the scheme is designed, which obviously is a, a big sort of thing for a, for a corporate to be able to say, we helped design this project. We were in there from the start, et cetera, et cetera. Tree planting days, in, encouraging local schools to get involved, all of those sort of things raise the profile for the corporate and therefore will raise that price. Again, it, it's really interesting to look at the type of scheme that corporates seem to be interested in. It really does range from the most, as Graham mentioned, the Clearfell sort of scheme um, and the commercial side of things, because obviously the timber that's generated, there's then embedded carbon in the products, your material substitution from you're not using steel and concrete. So a lot of companies are seeing those benefits from actual commercial woodlands, whereas certain companies are far more interested in mixed broadleaves. So it really is very difficult to say on that side of things 
what type of woodland is better in terms of value. But as I say, the more flexible you can be as a landowner, the price will definitely be driven higher. Mm. And, and Graham, what are your thoughts around the the type of tree planting and the species? Is, is there more of a focus on native species, uh, native woodland, as opposed to, to non-native conifer species? What's, what's the best type of planting a, a landowner could pursue? There's value in, in both of those uh, situations that you outlined there. I think the key for any landowner is to is to take a step back bef- and, and think, what, what are my objectives? What do I want to achieve out of this? And work from there. Native broadleaf uh, trees are, have a, you know, often have a higher biodiversity value, uh, amenity value. It depends what the, the landowner is trying to achieve at the end of the day. Um, if they're dealing with a bigger scheme, if they're in, in the situation where they, they can and want to do that, uh, then they might want um, a more uh, mixed woodland with conifers and natives uh, and we have the UK forestry standard which uh, means that there's there's a certain amount of, of mixture in, in any planting scheme anyway and the UK forestry standard is, is worth saying is one of the highest standards of forestry in the world and a lot of people don't understand that they, they, they sometimes have, have some sort of negative perceptions of, of forestry because it involves cutting trees down and it's you know the reality nowadays is 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 very different to to what some of the practices that go on overseas or 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 went on years ago in this country about where we planted trees but really you know to get back to your question it depends on the objectives of the landowner as to as to what um, what they want to achieve in terms of size in terms of um the, the species mix that they want to want to create. There's there's room for both, but I think one of the other things that's relevant here is to look to the future because we are in a, a changing climate and the trees that we planted years ago that are now mature and they've been in the ground for you know decades already. The ones that we plant today will will take decades to mature and and we're in a changing climate. So we need to be looking at different species sometimes, um, sourcing from different places. Um, different varieties will will be suited to a, to a different climate because you know our, our climate is becoming more like that of <clears throat> continental Europe uh, with uh, hotter summers and more extreme rainfall events etc that that uh, climate in which the trees grow is going to be is, is going to be a different one in the future to, to what it was in the past so we need to factor climate change into our species mixes and um, um, and our, and our objectives and when we mm, it comes back to the saying is that the right tree in the right place for the right reason and uh, as, as we draw this podcast to a close i know we could go on for, for a long time talking about this but i want to ask you the same question to both of you now uh, and, and that was what's your advice uh, to any land manager who's considering planting trees on their land what's your top tips um, and if i can start with with you andy well for me it'd be drop me an email give me me a call Um, but no I think one just uh, following on from Graham's point as well about the right tree in the right place um, there's a really fantastic tool from Forest Research which is the research division of the Forestry Commission and um, it's called the Ecological Site Classification um, and so ESC and uh, if you go online and type that in you'll be able to see 
the type of trees that would grow well in your area. So you can zoom in on your area, describe the type, as you say, Graham, the objectives you may have. And it also future proofs that to climate change. So it has all the climate models involved in um, what what trees will do well in a warmer, wetter climate. So um, that's really useful. But yeah, as I say, when it comes to land managers interested, have a look on the Woodland Carbon Code website, have a look at the um, different options that are available to you. And um, yeah, really consider all different types. You've already mentioned, Alad, about the timber income, the grant income, the carbon income. It's a far more diverse pool of income than it than it was before. Brilliant. And what about you, Graham? I would say to to any landowner to be be open to the possibility of tree planting. Um, it goes back to what your <clears throat> your objectives are, but um, there's probably some land on most farms and land holdings where uh, it's it's more marginal and you know it might be suited uh, to to tree planting rather than its current use, which is probably agriculture, cropping or livestock. Um, consider woodland creation. Uh, look at what grants and funding you might be able to, to get currently or in the future. There's a, a new scheme called ELM, Environmental Land Management, which DEF are putting together at the moment. It was going to start from 2024, um, which you might be able to uh, get involved in but even if you want to move before then there's there's the the current grant schemes investigate those be open-minded to the carbon income it is a bit complicated but it can make the difference and just just you know think about what it what what it is that you that you want and what's your objectives as the landowner and and then pull in the 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 various grants uh, help for uh, for establishment but also for for your woodland design plans and woodland management plans there is help out there there's templates and there's lots of um, consultants who can, and advisors who can can help you sort of work work through it um, so it's, it is actually quite exciting times for woodland and forestry now the stars are starting to align um, in many ways so it's, it's well worth looking at it certainly is an exciting time and I've thoroughly enjoyed this discussion and it's really got me excited actually. I think there's some real opportunities out there when you think about the multiple benefits that tree planting can, can bring not only in solving climate change but in terms of providing another income stream for many farmers and there'll be a lot of farming businesses and landowners looking to the future, seeking to diversify, seeking to think of new ways to make sure their businesses are resilient going forward and, and trees might offer the solution for some. Well, Graham and Andy, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast it's been brilliant having you on board uh, but that's all we've got time for today i'm afraid thank you very much for listening and until the next time on behalf of graham clark andy baker and myself ali jones all the best and bye for now thank you to till hill for supporting today's episode if you're not a member of the cla you can join today more information can be found on our website www.cla.org.uk thank you for listening and i hope you can join us again soon You've been listening to the Rural Business Uncovered podcast, the CLA's new weekly podcast released every Friday. You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or just search Rural Business Uncovered on your chosen podcast provider. Remember to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss an episode. Have 
ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 